0: Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell pouring out your serving of pure distilled intoxicating and occasionally delicious history. Hello, my guest today is Dr. James Wolven-Obe, Professor Emeritus of History at the University of York, who is here to discuss his book, A World Transformed, Slavery in the Americas and the Origins of Global Power. His other books include How Sugar Corrupted the World, From Slavery to Obesity, The Trader, The Owner, The Slave, Parallel Lives in the Age of Slavery, and Freedom, The Fall of the Slave Empires. Jim, thank you very much for joining us on Single Malt History. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Jim, a world transformed for people interested in learning more about the slave trade, slavery and its impact. I think this book will be a goldmine. It wears its scholarship lightly, but it is very clearly the work of an expert. To begin with the beginning... Part 1, The Trade. It goes back further than we might expect to look at the 15th and 16th centuries to see where the seeds of the African diaspora began. And you point out that slavery is an institution almost as old as humanity, but for the majority of its existence, it does not seem to have been specifically racially based. I was stunned at the numbers that between 1500 and 1680 Just over 1 million Europeans were kidnapped by North African pirates and taken to be sold as slaves, mostly in the Ottoman Empire. There are also some very early instances of Africans being brought to Europe enslaved decades before the mass kidnappings began. You quote, for example, a very moving eyewitness European account from 1444, the author of which uh, saw 235 Africans Africans disembarked off a slave ship in southern Portugal, writing that the slaves, quote, kept their heads low and their faces bathed with tears. Others stood groaning very dolorously, looking up to the height of heaven, fixing their eyes upon it, crying out loudly. Others struck their faces with the palms of their hands, throwing themselves at full length upon the ground, while others made lamentations. And it is to Portugal and to Spain that you first turn your attention with the argument that it was Spanish and Portuguese actions in the Americas, what they called the new world, that laid the bedrock for the future of a slave trade, which specifically and deliberately targeted Africans as its victims. For our listeners, what was it that Spain and Portugal did that helped make this possible?
1: What? Spain and Portugal did with their um, involvement in Atlantic slavery was revealed just how uh, important enslaved Africans were to their conquests in the Americas. There'd been Africans in Europe for centuries before. They'd arrived via the overland routes and then across the Mediterranean, the Trans-Sahara routes, and some up the east uh, up the east coast of Africa through Egypt into the Mediterranean. But those were very small numbers. It's when the Spaniards and the Portuguese begin to um, move outwards, really, into the Atlantic, down the Atlantic coast of Africa, amongst the, island, the Atlantic islands, that they encounter Africans, that they find them, Useful in their other development, that is their settlements in the Americas, the islands in the Caribbean, and particularly in South America. And there they find that um, local labor isn't there in numbers that they want. The local Indian people either die out or are killed or simply move away. And they've got this extraordinary bounty of land in abundance, but not enough labor to work it. So they turn to the institution which all Europeans were familiar with earlier, and that is slavery. But in this case, it's the slavery of Africans. And what becomes this bizarre, really bizarre, if you think of it, shifting of people 3000 miles across the Atlantic, uh, it's proved to be economic. I mean, you make money from it. It's, it's a good way of filling the labor void in the Americas and it's a, a profitable enterprise. So it's a combination of imperialism, a combination of financial gain. And the Spaniards and the Portuguese initiate it And the other Europeans follow them when they begin their own ventures in the Americas.
0: And when and how do we see other European states, specifically the French, the British, the Dutch, becoming involved in the Atlantic slave trade?
1: Well, really, from um, the fifteenth mid fifteenth century, mid sixteenth century onwards, mid sixteenth century onwards, you see other Europeans again gaining power locally. The uh, the rise of the Dutch empires, uh, then the rise of the British Empire and the French empires, and they look to the Americas and they see what the Spaniards and Portuguese had already achieved, and they're anxious to get in on the action. There's very little. There's some but very little kind of moral or religious um, uh, objection to what's happening. What they look at when they see the Spaniards and Portuguese are uh, an extraordinary collection of empires. I mean, the Spanish empire stretches as far as Manila. Um, the Portuguese empire um, in Brazil uh, reveals this extraordinary landmass with un- unimaginable kind of potential. And the northern Europeans, gaining in strength as a kind of um, trading and uh, military powers, want to be a part of it. And what they do is to look to the Americas for land and for settlement, and they look to Africa of a way as a way of uh, tapping that potential.
0: Jim, I have to say that it's the numbers that really boggle the mind. I mean, that was that's one of the things I've taken away from this book between the early. Yeah. 16th and mid-19th centuries. I mean, we're looking at an estimated 12 and a half million Africans captured and transported by sea out of Africa as slaves. Uh, This means it's the greatest enforced migration in recorded history. And in the second part of A World Transformed, you explore the process of that enforced migration, how these people were moved. You quote from the accounts on board a slave ship called the Elizabeth from a voyage in the spring of 1719, which records things like children dying in the hold of convulsions. And on March 24th, 1719, an African, quote, man, stubborn would not eat. It sounds like some victims were deliberately starving themselves to death on the voyage to America. Can you describe for our listeners what the voyages to the Americas on the slave ships were like?
1: Well, first of all, the numbers. The numbers are staggering. Um, And even though those of us who've been working on this uh, field for a long time, you have to sort of pinch yourself occasionally to think of the numbers involved. We're looking at more than 12 million people loaded onto the slave ships and more than 11 million landing in the Americas. It is the largest movement and forced movement of peoples until the 20th century. And remember, that's at a time when the population of the world is much, much smaller than it is today. It gives you some sense of the enormity of this. The conditions on those ships, is nothing less than appalling from beginning to end. And the difficulty with talking about it is that uh, it, it sounds prurient after a fashion, after, and after a while, you have to be very careful how you deal with this because it's suffering on a scale that um, it's as if you're talking about the camps in the Second World War. The, the, the horrors are such that it's very difficult to sort of deal with it and describe it uh, in a sensitive fashion. The, the Atlantic crossings, are the longer they are, the, the, the longer they take, the worse they are. Um, The Africans are crowded in. Now, of course, the the purpose of shipping the Africans into the Americas is not to kill them. It's not genocidal in the sense they want to kill them. The purpose is to make a profit from them. They're trying to get them to the Americas to sell them. Um, But even so, the conditions are such, they're trying to get as many as they can in, although that um, changes over time. They they know it's better not to cramp people together too tightly, but they want to make as quick a crossing as possible, but even so, Something like a million and a half Africans don't make it. Design, they die from the disease. Um, the condition, they're living in their own filth. Um, and if, of course, there's a stormy crossing, the crew can't go down below to release the dead and the sick and can't clean them, can't feed them. I mean, these are um, scenes of a kind of a hellish nature that are very difficult Even. Um, experienced uh, surgeons with a strong sort of stomach find it um, impossible really to go down below deck and to, and deal with the Africans. It is a, a nightmare. And what we need to remember is that of those 11.5 million survivors, all of them, all of them had experienced this traumatic experience. So it's not just that it's a, a trauma that uh, is experienced at high seas. It's something that people live with for the rest of their lives and, and then pass on, of course, in folk to folk, uh, folk memory to generations who were born in the Americas. It is a, a pestilential, disease-ridden and death-ridden
0: experience. Of the 12.5 million people, enslaved Africans, as you say, about eleven million survived the crossing, which is in itself horrifying, um if you think about one point five million or one and a half million about not making it. um of the of the survivors of the crossing, by a significant margin, the largest single, this which again, I was so interested to read. um and I think for a lot of um English language readers, this will be a surprise. By a significant margin, the largest single group, nearly half, were taken to Brazil. I mean the numbers here are staggering again. 142,000 Africans to labor in the Amazon region, 854,000 enslaved to Pernambuco and 2.3 million uh, to the regions in and around Rio de Janeiro. You quote witnesses of the internal Brazilian slave markets who see things like quote children yanked from their mothers, husbands separated from their wives, parents from children. What was Brazilian African slavery like as an institution, and how do you think it still affects Brazil today?
1: Two things, first of all, the the figures are astonishing. The the numbers going to Brazil are astonishing. And it's important to remember this because the very great bulk of all Africans go not to North America, only the, the smallest proportion of Africans end up in North America. The largest proportion go to Brazil, and the second largest to the Caribbean. In a way, we've got to get people's attention uh, not away from North America, but make them stand back and remember that it's the Caribbean and Brazil that soaks up the largest numbers of Africans shipped across. Now, Brazilian slavery is so enormous. Of course, the landmass is just so huge. Uh, Brazilian slavery is extraordinarily varied. It ranges from people working in mines, people growing sugar, people growing tobacco, later growing coffee, um, and but every single uh, occupation you could imagine is done by um, enslaved Africans. Um, there's a huge amount of urban slavery. Every every Brazilian town and city. Has enormous numbers of um, enslaved Africans doing jobs around, this, around the town, in the city, in the houses, carrying people. An extraordinary number of um, uh, Brazilians, if they own slaves, are carried around by them. Um, you can't really look at the landscape, the human landscape of Brazil, without seeing slaves doing something, whether it's the washerwoman in, in Brazil or whether it's the slaves hacking away at the frontier, right at the very edge of a human settlement. Um, and because of that, of course, the nature of slavery varies enormously. I mean it's, it's different for slaves working as a cook in a very fashionable home uh, than it is from people hacking sugar on a plantation and on the frontiers. Um, large numbers of people work on, on ships, for instance, the great river systems. So it varies enormously, but wherever it exists, there you hear the crack of the whip, there you hear the smack. A physical um, repression. That, that Slavery is kept in place by a whole series of uh, uh, carrots and sticks, but it's the stick that is the most noticeable, and it's the one that's audible, and it's the one aspect of slave control in Brazil and elsewhere that
0: visitors comment on and are appalled by across the centuries. You began your research into slavery in 1967 by focusing on an individual sugar plantation in Jamaica. One of the things which made your research possible and so productive was the paper trail left behind by enslavers and their overseers. I'm being slightly reductive with this next point, but for context with our listeners, generally with mass acts, um, sorry, by their nature, they're mass acts, by acts of terror, genocide, or even famine, the documentary trail, the paper trail, is. Lackluster. it's less than we might hope. The Spanish destruction of the indigenous population in the Caribbean, the French Revolution's implementation of genocide in the Vendée, the Great Irish Famine of the 1840s, the Red Terror in Russia in the 1920s, these all tend to suffer from a lack of eyewitness accounts written at the time. that There's not nothing uh, to use a double negative, but historians are, are always keen for more. A memorable exception is the Holocaust. You've already uh, referenced the camps by, by way of comparison. And the Nazis themselves kept meticulous records of their crimes against humanity. Prior to reading A World Transformed, I had assumed the Nazi paper trail of the 1940s, the Nazi paper trail to their guilt was almost unique. But apparently the enslavers of the 18th and 19th centuries kept really detailed records that make it very clear what was done and what they inflicted. Can you talk briefly sort of, about that paper trail from the perpetrators of slavery?
1: paper trail of slavery is astonishing, uh, and it, it all hinges on one simple point, and that is because the Africans were property, because people owned them as things, you bought them, you sold them, you inherited them, you bequeathed them, you gave them away, because they were regarded as things, they had a value. So whether you were buying them for a slave ship or selling them off a slave ship, whether you were actually um, swapping them inside a plantation system, there they are as things, and as such... They enter the legal records. People uh, document them. That people, a plantation owner would list them, and list their names, their age, what they did, and what their value is. And it's the slaver's property that gives us the clue to this whole phenomenon as of, of the of the paper trail really of slavery, from the dockside of Liverpool or of Lisbon, the slaves are the slave system is finally documented in paper. Uh, And on the slave ships, the log books of the captains, the sales of uh, merchants in the the Caribbean and Brazil and North America, the plantation records of plantation owners and the, uh, the scribes who worked for them, document every aspect of the slave's life. We know more about the laboring poor amongst the uh, slave population than we do really about almost any other um, pre-modern uh, uh, laboring people. We don't know that much about the laboring classes of of Europe in the way that we do of the slaves. And that raises a very interesting question because people say, this is a hidden history. The irony is that it may have been hidden in terms of people not looking for it and not noticing it, but in terms of paperwork, it's there by the ton, by the shelf, by miles of shelving. And it's only recently that this has, this has dawned on historians. It's only in the last 50 years that people have noticed that there are miles of shelving of papers about slavery that tell the story.
0: You- You write about the ways in which slavery's influence in the West was staggering to the extent that we still probably haven't even begun to process how it influenced everything right down to what we eat.
1: Yes. Uh, Slavery is pervasive in ways that... um is still now, even at the height of the kind of current debate about slavery, it's still not fully recognized. The degree to which slavery was ubiquitous and is pervasive. You cannot understand um, the way the West emerged from, let's say, the 16th century onwards, unless you build in the nature and the role of the slave system in the Western economy. Uh, The very foods we ate what would be what could be more British than a sweet cup of tea? Tea from China, sugar from the Caribbean, uh, coffee. What 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 is more American than a sweet cup of coffee? Coffee came from Brazil. Who grew it? The slaves. Um, that slavery is so much part and parcel, the warp and weft, really, of um, Western life uh, that it, it's gone unnoticed, even when it's staring you in the face. We, we we concentrated recently on the people who've made the most money from slavery. You know. The, the aristocrats with their stately homes, the banks, the insurance companies, uh, the great uh, landowners, et cetera, et cetera. But there are so many other people involved. There are tens of thousands of people involved in slavery. And what about the ordinary working men that manned the slave ships, for instance? What about the the, the middlemen, uh, the middle management on plantations? The number of Scots, the the thousands of Scots that uh, dominate the kind of running and the bookkeeping of the plantations in the Caribbean and in uh, in North America is just astonishing. Slavery is everywhere. And it's only now that we're
0: coming to accept that that is a central feature of uh, Western historical experience. To quote from the book, Slavery has permeated the domestic fabric of the Western world, but it remained unseen and unnoticed, out of sight and generally out of mind. When do you think we really see an abolitionist sentiment and movement properly gather momentum in countries that, as you say I mean, I think that's just what you said was a brilliant point countries that not just the top tier, but you know vast numbers of their people had benefited from the slave trades.
1: This is the interesting question. Um, The Western world had uh, very little objection to the slave system of the Atlantic until really late in the day. It's not really until the late 18th century that it gathers momentum. There were voices earlier on, voices from the very start of slavery that had doubts about it. But uh, by and large, the West did not feel that here is a system that is morally or religiously outrageous. But today, I mean, today it's uh, it's anathema and it? it's a pariah. Uh, but that wasn't the case in, let's say, um, 1750. In 1850, it was increasingly the case. Something changes, and the real question is when does the when and why does the West ch- turn against slavery? They didn't turn against it by 1750 or 1650. Now, if it's wrong in 1850 or 1950. Why wasn't it wrong in 1750 or 1650? Something's changed and what's changed is the West. The Western world shifts against slavery, beginning really from about 1776 onwards, the American Revolution. Then 1789, the the French Revolution, rights of man, liberty, equality, fraternity, all of that. There's a gradual shift, and there's also a shift, and again, this is a difficult point to make, but in a day when people don't think of religion as significant, that people turn to new religions that themselves find slavery abhorrent. The non-conformists particularly turn against slavery. In in the USA, I mean, the Baptist and Methodists rail against slavery long before the uh, Europeans do. And it's the West turns, and it turns from Say 1776 onwards. I mean, that's roughly the way it works. But um, it is rough. But by uh, within a generation and two generations, it had become anathema. Uh, the late Victorians think that they are virtuous in campaigning against slave trade. They think of themselves as abolitionist people. But they, in in thinking that, they actually create a smokescreen that separates them from the world that shaped uh, slavery. The British come to. The British in particular come to think of themselves as an abolitionist people, but in the process they tend to forget what they did before, and that is that they'd helped shape this extraordinary exploitative system to the, their enormous economic benefit.
0: Well that sort of sets up brilliantly my next question on the subject of memory and memorialization, which I suppose is is cousin to memory. Uh, your final chapter, Slavery Matters, analyzes the renewed vigor of the debate on slavery. Today, we have seen, obviously, debates over statues of Confederate generals in America and slave traders in Britain. We have heard a greater discussion about teaching the historiography of slavery in British history curriculums. We've seen the Minister of Education for Brazil saying that he would like to see the country's history curriculum shift to live focus on the extent to which pro-slavery sentiment was still potent enough to help abolish the monarchy in 1888 after the last emperor sided with the abolitionists belatedly although in reality i think most biographers would say that decision lay more with his daughter and regent the princess imperial isabel leading up to the so-called golden law by which we finally see african-based slavery abolished in the americas It all seems to support your statement in the book that, quote, hard evidence about the slave trade has permeated public awareness and political debate. Where do you think the history of slavery goes from here?
1: Well, two things. One is the the nature of slavery itself um, that survives. Anti-slavery, Anti-Slavery International in London Campaigns vigorously, as do lots of other organisations, against slavery. Today, it's not dead. It's not gone. It's banned. It's outlawed. It's uh, illegal. But that doesn't mean it's uh, it's vanished. Um, the numbers of people who are enslaved today are still enormous. There are arguments about the numbers, and that's because it's really a function of um, of dire poverty. And of the Western world able to buy goods that are produced by effectively by slave labor in parts of the world that we don't really pay much attention to. So slavery survives and the campaign against it continues. I think what the, the other question is how we how we think about the history of slavery. Where does that go? It, it's happened very, very quickly. Those of us who've worked on this a long time have occasionally had to pinch ourselves that suddenly. Slavery is front page news. In the case of The Guardian, the the English newspaper, The Guardian, uh, there's scarcely a week goes by without something in there on slavery, uh, one kind or another. Ten years ago, that simply wasn't the case. Uh, Ten years ago, there was not very much argument about the question of reparations. Now it's front page news. Um, It's a hot topic. It's a hot political topic, a hot social topic, right down to, should we teach it in primary schools? Should we teach it in secondary schools? What emphasis do we place on it in, in education? It's a, it's a central issue in the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about our, our history. And it is a kind of exciting area to be involved in. And for those, as I say, those of us who have been working on it for a long time, have, have been taken aback by how quickly it's come to the forefront. I think there are good, uh, there are good explanations for that, uh, not least the kind of... Um, uh, the, the, the disastrous episodes in the United States of the continuing exploitation of black people, um, and not just in the United States, but that's led to a kind of an outrage about continuing problems of black people throughout the Western world, which are directly related to the history of slavery. You will not understand the history of racism and the way people are treated in the white by the white world unless you understand the story of slavery. And that's why it's important that the history of slavery is actually broadcast and reaffirmed as we move along.
0: Well, I mean, as you say, you've studied slavery for decades, Jim, and I, I have to be honest. There were times, read in preparation, obviously for this interview, uh, when I was reading a world transformed. I had to stop. Like there were times where it was, it, it was, it took the breath away, and not that I think that anyone. Uh, with more than two brain cells is under any illusion that slavery is by its nature a particularly brutal and horrific uh, institution and system. But it's in the minutiae and in the details of of how millions upon millions of people were treated that it's I mean, it's absolutely horrifying and and that brings me to my last question, which is in many ways, you've spent decades studying, the extent and depth of man's inhumanity to man. It is a a story of racist horror, of cruelty and exploitation. What do you think are its lessons beyond the importance and truth of what was done? I think the lessons
1: really from uh, studying slavery are related to um, the broader lessons of the Western world and the wider world. And that is that slavery is one aspect of a broader story of European imperialism um, and European entanglement with the people of the wider world, which is exploitative in the extreme. in in this case, my own interest is in British slavery, but it's true of the of the French, it's true of the Dutch, it's true of the Spaniards, it's true of the Portuguese. Uh, these are people who, over a period of let's say four or five centuries, have been extraordinarily kind of uh, light-handed with the lives of others. They've been extraordinarily exploitative for their own benefit, and uh, all the all the discussions about. Uh, Western greatness, Western material well-being, Western um, uh, achievements have to be set in the balance against uh, nations that actually were doled out cruelty and exploitation on a scale that we simply haven't come to to, to recognize and uh, come to terms with.
0: Well, my thanks uh, to Dr. Jim Wolven, whose new book, A World Transformed Slavery in the Americas and the Origins of Global Power, is available now in all good bookstores and sites. Jim, I have to say this is one of the most, um, it was—it it is an absolutely brilliant book. I, I had to put it down at times, but I find it completely fascinating and very convincing. So thank you very much for, for stopping by Single Malt History.
1: Thank you for having
0: me. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you and take care.